HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This week on Meet and Three, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called paya. Parathe Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today's guest is Corey Carmen, owner of Carmen Ranch, a grass-fed cattle operation in eastern Oregon. Corey, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I, I just, as I said, Oregon, I was thinking, do I say that weird? Can you, <laughs> I feel like I say it like I'm on the East Coast and maybe like that's not how you say it. <laughs> you do, you do say it like you're on the East Coast. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> just get that, just get that out of the way. Um, so, well, well, since we're talking about this date, um, why don't you first um, give listeners a sense of where you are, like, you know, sort of like where geographically your ranch is located? So my family ranch is actually in the very northeastern corner of Oregon, so on the Idaho-Washington border. Um, often if people know about rural Oregon, they think of Bend, which is actually six hours from where we are. Wow. We're way up there. Um, and the county itself is about 2 million acres, um, and we have about 7,000 people. 
I believe we have something like 70,000 head of cattle. So oh, my definitely, gosh. So right. like 10 definitely times the cattle compared to mm-hmm. people, essentially. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and your farm has a long history from what I understand. Can you give us the, a little of the backstory? Yeah, so my um, great-great-grandfather was the first person, and he actually traded some um, some land that he had in Washington. And um, my great-grandfather lived here, raised his family here, um, followed by my grandmother, and then and then my father, and then me. Um, so I'm the fourth generation that's actually you know been on the ranch every day, and my kids are the fifth. Wow. And did you always want to continue that legacy or did you take some time off and come back? No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> imagine that I would come back. Um, I, you know, love, have always loved the ranch, have always loved livestock, really feel like it's an important part of, um, our, you know, our food, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's so critical how it's grown. But Certainly when I was growing up, I didn't see a lot of women in agriculture. Um, I didn't, it was a very kind of divisive time, especially in the Pacific Northwest with a lot of the environmental conflicts. And um, yeah, it just wasn't a place I saw myself coming back to right away. Mm -hmm. I really thought I would go have this like glamorous career in policy. And eventually I would retire and move back to the ranch. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did go, I um, left I went to Stanford and studied environmental policy and um, thought it, that I could sort of make my mark and serve my community and, and the, you know, the ranching world in general by working in policy. Mm. And after a year on Capitol Hill, I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm not sure, <laughs> not sure this, is, this is what I imagined. And eventually I ended up back at the ranch just to um, be there for the summer. Right. And um, that was 16 years ago and I haven't, I haven't left. Wow. And so how did that time away, and especially your education and and, um, background in environmental policy, how did that affect um, how you approached taking over the ranch? Certainly, I felt, I think the big eye-opener for me when I went to college was how... um, people had really negative ideas around livestock and cattle in particular and had we not really been associated or, or seen or, or known much about, you know, the feedlot industry, um, you know, being part of a family that really, you know, thought about things in the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really, and, and being sheltered growing up in a town of 800 people, I was really shocked to see what negative, and then I was also, what negative impressions people had about my stock, and then I was also shocked to learn how much of those impressions were really valid. Um, And so I think studying policy and looking at how the Farm Bill in particular drives people's incentives was really important for me to come back. And it's sort of ironic, I guess, that I thought I would go out into the world and try to change the world's mind about how they saw ranchers, and now I find myself... Um, really leaning into the ranching community and helping them understand how they can be such a huge part of the solution to these huge challenges that we have, like climate change, nutrition, human health, you know, connection to place. 
Um, ranchers are really poised to be the solution, and oftentimes they think the world is against them. So um, I think understanding how policy works, but also understanding how the outside world views us has really helped inform how I spend my time. Right. I mean, I think I think about this question, what you're talking about a lot, that kind of um, there's often a feeling that, you know, environmental advocates are kind of up against ranchers. You know, there's sort of like a tension between farmers and ranchers and then um, environmental groups. And, and, you know, like you're saying, it, it is so it makes so much sense for those groups to come together. And but you said something about how ranchers feel like. Um, you know, these groups are sort of against them. Do you think that there's something about the rhetoric that that we use, you know, people um, that are in cities that are, are not on a farm, that don't understand how things really work on the farm? Is there something about the way we talk about this stuff that isn't helpful, that, um, you know, you think needs to change? That's a great question. You know, I certainly think um, others have pointed out this idea that people in the cities, I think, discredit and discount um, the rural voice and the rural perspective. Mm-hmm. I think it's um, it's really easy to disregard people who are sort of living on the edge and in these you know remote places as maybe not as sophisticated, not as intelligent, not as informed. And I think you know we make those judgments at our own peril because while uh, rural people, by and large, may not offer the same types of um, things that we look to our own, you know, urban compatriots for. Um, they they offer a lot. Um, they offer a lot in terms of knowing how to create community and support each other, a connection to place, an ability to listen to the land. You know, it's just these sort of these different languages that we speak right. um, in urban places and rural places. And we both have so much to learn from each other. Yeah. And I think what I find um, most compelling and inspiring is that there are so many values that we have in common. Um, and, and it doesn't look like that if you were to just look at, you know, the, the kind of political um, position or, you know, other ways that we try to sort for people that have similarities with us. Right. You know, my customers that buy grass-fed beef from us and my producers that contribute to our supply on the surface look like they have nothing in common. But when we get them all around the table, we find that they actually have so much to talk about and they have a really great time. And so I, I see that potential all the time and I think you're right. So many times the conversations don't get there because we're talking about the wrong things. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, you also kind of hinted at this thing that I think about a lot, which is we all have different roles in this conversation, right? We don't all have to know everything. And, you know, people ask me a lot, like, oh, you know, I know you write about agriculture. Like, are, are you a farmer? Have you ever farmed? And when I say no, there's often this sort of shock, like, oh, my God, really? And it's like, well, no, I don't farm because farmers don't have time to be reporters or to get their, right. Like my job is to go and talk and, and find And their, their job is to produce food and actually to provide that, you know, insight into the stuff that I don't know about. And then I can do what I know how to do that they don't know how to do, which is get the word out. Right. And it's like, we all have these, 
you know, things that we're good at and things that we know. And, and, you know, the national conversation is going to be richer for that if we can, you know, all sort of do the thing that we are good at and talk to the things we know. Um, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. And, and I think that's one of the, you know, back to your earlier point, I think that's one of the things that, that we like to gloss over is agriculture is really, really complicated, right? Mm-hmm. There are many types of crops. There are many nuances. Um, what Something like 92% of all life is actually below the soil surface. Oh, my God. I mean, it's, it's staggering, yeah, right? That's amazing. And so this idea that, you know, farmers are simpletons living out in the, in the country um, it is you know, not only false, it's sort of like the contrary. We we need so many people engaged in agriculture and talking about our food system, um, thinking about the nuance of our food system. And it's just, yeah, it's going to require so many different skills. Yeah, um, absolutely. So we, we got off on a really cool tangent there. <laughs> but I want to I want to get back to Carmen Ranch um, and what you do. So, so you're doing grass-fed um, beef. And when when you took over the ranch, was that already the case or was this um, system that you're using, was that new? No, when I came back to the ranch, we had actually raised registered livestock. So we raised breeding stock. We were very much part of kind of the mainstream cattle industry, but a little bit um, specialty within that industry. And I told my uncle when I came back that I really wanted to raise grass-fed beef. I had learned about it in college, and it, it made a ton of sense to me. I had never tried it <laughs> or, or really knew anything about it, and he was devastated. He said, um, why don't you grow something that people actually like? <laughs> why, would you, why would you do grass-fed beef? So um, it was a huge and steep learning curve for me, and it continues to be a learning curve. But over the last decade or so, we transitioned all of our livestock production um, into 100% grass-fed beef. Um, and then we brought a whole bunch of other producers along with us. Wow. What were some of the biggest challenges, like structural challenges, to just changing the ranch's systems? There were probably two. Mm-hmm. One is financial. Right. Um, all of us in agriculture are on an annual operating loan basis for the most part. And, you know, like so much of the world, we have to think about things in a single 12-month calendar year. So for us to go from selling our calves at weaning time to um, keeping them for an additional 12 months or more to finish them on grass, um, that was really challenging. Mm. From a financial standpoint, and, and that's actually the thing that took the longest. Um, building up the demand uh, was also challenging, but not as much as, as the cash flow piece. And I think what um, what we find all over the place is, by and large in this country, we finish. So, you know, taking an animal all the way to um, it being really fat mm-hmm. in a feedlot. And people don't know how to finish on grass. They don't know, you know, they don't know how to continue that forage chain into the different life cycle or life stages of an animal. Um, so it's uh, to relearn that um, is a long process and to make sure that you have the resources, um, the resource base, the types of forage in front of you um, and developing the quality of forage that you need to finish 
um, all of that is, is a long process and a lot of investment. Right. And so when you were learning all that, is it a process of like looking things up online, reading, um, training, or like how did you actually kind of get the resources you needed to create that system? It was slow. Yeah. Um, certainly early on, there were a handful of pioneers in the grass-fed space that I learned from. Um, I went to Will Harris's, I showed up at his farm mm. um, in Georgia. Um, there was a company outside of Walla Walla that was doing some really innovative work, and, and the company that was producing for them are now producing for me. So I've, I think I've just been fortunate to have beat in this industry for a long time and learn from the people that are already doing it and then connect them with each other so I continue to learn. Mm-hmm. And then we just did it ourselves, you know, we ate a lot of meat. We got uh, feedback from customers. We worked with chefs. We spent a lot of time um, in our custom exempt butcher shop, you know, cut by cut with the cut, um, the NAMP guide. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of time. A lot of trial and error, I'm sure. Um, And so what is the actual, can you just kind of give us a picture of what the system looks like today? Like, I'm pretty sure you use the system that is often referred to as holistic management. Is that right? Yes, certainly on on my family ranch. And I I guess I'll just back up to give you a little bit of context. So I have two two businesses. Um, One is a family ranch, and that is, um, you know, that's the 5,000-some acres that we manage in northeastern Oregon. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, been in my family for over 100 years and, you know, has the houses and whatnot. But the number of animals that we're able to grow on that property and to finish on that property is always sort of limited by our land base and our seasonality. And so as I tried to develop a market for the grass-fed cattle that we produced, I realized that consumers, by and large, have an expectation that beef will be fresh on a year-round basis. Mm. And I also realized that more than anything, I didn't want to just create a successful model on my own ranch. I wanted to create a community of people that were really dedicated to grass-fed beef production in part so I could learn from them. And so over time, I built a separate company, which is you know what we call the meat company. And that's actually what I spend most of my time on ah. is the meat company. And it's, we use the Carmen Ranch brand, okay. but that company represents about seven or eight producers, mostly in the Pacific Northwest into Nevada, that work together to produce 100% grass-fed beef on a year-round basis. So I have a staff. We're about 10 people at the meat company, and then I have um, three people that work at the family ranch and kind of do the day-to-day management. Okay. And when you say you work together to produce grass-fed beef, like what are the elements that you work together on? How are these seven or eight um, ranches linked? Well, um, we get together twice a year and we look at a schedule and we decide each rancher chooses one week, two weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks that they provide cattle. And so the cool thing about working together is I know one of the things that we really struggled with in the beginning was trying to provide um beef throughout a certain time of the year. Mm -hmm. So even if it was just for six months, you know, having animals that were finished and ready to go for six straight months is really hard. Um, So what these ranchers do is they focus on a specific time of the year and they, um, you know, create 
their their sort of production chain in order to have cattle ready, you know, sometimes only during six months of the year or two months of the year or even, you know, a single month, they can have all of their livestock finished and delivered to us. The other thing we do is share information about um, quality grade and yield grade and consumer feedback and growing practices, forage, um, cover crops, um, you know, minerals. I mean, you know, the, the ranchers that I work with are really good. They're really dedicated to grass fed, but they're outside of that, they're just really great livestock people. Some of them have um, exceptional genetics, and so everybody else, all the other ranchers learn from them. One producer in particular has really focused on cover cropping rotations and finishing rations using a cover crop. Mm. So, I'll, you know, we'll go to his place and we'll learn from him. We're actually, later this week, we're going to have our producer meeting in Portland, and we'll hear from a lot of our customers. Huh. So I'll bring buyers in and some of our main customers and um, so the ranchers can hear, you know, what the consumers are, are talking about. Right. And so is all the processing and distribution then centralized for, for the producers? Right. So what we do is the producers make a commitment to provide a certain number of finished cattle that are 100% grass-fed to us. Um, you know, based on which week of the year they sign up for. And then we take it from there. So we coordinate all of the processing with a family-owned processing um, plant south of Portland. Um, We come up with all of the cut specs. We work with warehousing and distribution company that is a smaller family-owned company as well. And then our team takes orders, does invoicing, um, and make sure that the meat gets where it's supposed to. Got it. Okay. So, and so that's really interesting. We just got a lot of background on this, this, the business side. Um, and I do want to talk a, a, about your buyers and the market. Um, but just to, to go back, um, I just, I don't want to um, sort of go past this question of just like what, how you personally actually raise cattle and, um, like, can you talk a little bit about the process on the ranch of holistic management and what that looks like? Absolutely. Um, and, and it's really fun because I think one of the biggest insights that I've had is it's really informed by holistic management. Um, and so when I first came back, I realized that uh, as much as I knew about cattle and livestock and, you know, all of the different um livestock ailments, I didn't really know that much about grass. Mm. (laughs) We hadn't really talked about that in my family. (laughs) Um, So I started taking a lot of classes on on rangeland management, and I ran across holistic management, and it was just, like, you know, amazing. And so we started holistic management being this idea that, you know, our semi-arid grasslands evolved in um, at the same time as these huge herds of herbivores. And so the grasses in our environment really benefit from grazing, first mm-hmm. of all. Like, they do better when they're grazed. So long as that grazing happens in a relatively short window and it's followed by a long period of rest. Mm. Because that's what grasses know, right? That's what our types of grasses know. And, and if they can um, 
get that type of treatment year in and year out, they'll actually thrive. Right. If they don't get that type of disturbance, then they tend to choke, you know, they grow up and um, get rank and they kind of choke themselves out. And if they're overgrazed, then they create bare ground and they create opportunities for weeds to move in. So we started those practices. Um, we just, instead of turning, you know, a few head out here, there, and everywhere, and then leaving them for a long period of time, we consolidated our herd. We added a lot of temporary electric fence that was charged by solar panels, and we moved as often as we could each year, kind of pushing ourselves to have um, shorter grazing periods and longer rest periods. Mm. And our neighbors thought we were nuts. (laughs) (laughs) We might have been. But over time, we really did start to see a pretty significant impact um, in the land and just like the health and vigor of the plants. We stopped using fertilizer. We stopped using any sort of herbicide. Wow. And we really started thinking about how do we how do we create the conditions where instead of looking at what we hate and what we want to kill and what we want to destroy, as, which we so often fall into that trap in agriculture, um, we started thinking about what we wanted to, to nourish and create the conditions for abundance, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we think about, you know, the plants we want to see, what do they like? you know, how can we, we can support their growth. Um, and I think that's just such an important paradigm shift for every aspect of, of not only uh, grazing, but like life in general. Right. Absolutely. And so it's, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, and then, and then I think the final piece is, and, and my biggest kind of insight, um, which really drives my work now is that you take the principles of holistic management where you're, looking at the land and you're looking at the indicators of rangeland health, species diversity, an active mineral cycle, um, and that you see that, you know, you're looking for indicators um, and, and then of health, and then you try to um, use the tools you have at your disposal, livestock and rest being two of those critical tools to um, promote health. So we take that same mindset now, and we actually have applied it to farmland. And so... Mm. In these rural communities where farmland and rangeland is, is often segregated, um, we're trying to reconnect the farmers and the ranchers together to help the farmers see that the ranchers' livestock can be a really important crop rotation for them, and the results we're seeing are amazing. Hmm. So as a grass-to-beef operation, we get access to higher-quality forage from the farmers, and then what the farmers are seeing is that by planting a cover crop specifically to feed their soil and then using livestock to harvest that cover crop, they can eliminate tillage rotations, they can eliminate fertilizer, and they can see improved yields for multiple years after those cattle have left. Right. That's, that's incredible. Um, we have to take a quick break, <laughs> so I'm going to cut you off. And then when we come back, I want to I keep going and, and talk a little bit more about these practices Um, and then also dive a little bit more into the market. So we'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. 
George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm here with Corey Carmen, the owner of Carmen Ranch in Oregon. And Corey, we've been talking about a lot. We talked about a lot, actually, in that first, first part of the show. Um, but where we just ended off was we we're talking about some of these practices you use on the farm um, as part of holistic management, um, at, like uh, this rotational grazing, letting the land rest, um, cover crops, all the all these different practices. And you were kind of hinting at how they help farmers, how they bring costs down, how um, the land is restored, and all these things are actually good for the farmers. Um, and you know, these these practices obviously have environmental benefits too. Um, so. I'm curious, you know, are you think when you are implementing these practices, are you thinking about um, that aspect too? Are you thinking about carbon sequestration? One of the hardest words to say. Um, what's your take on how ranches like yours might contribute to that conversation? You know, I think it is the uh, probably most prominent organizing concept around our entire business mm. is this idea of soil health. And soil health, because um, soil health and soil organic matter are so closely tied, so to the degree that we are promoting soil health, we're sequestering carbon. To the degree that we're promoting soil health and sequestering carbon, we are promoting um, sort of um, nutritious plants. Those nutritious plants are making our cattle healthier and making the meat more nutritious. So um, then we're addressing some of the human health issues that are really um, have to do with the lack of nutrients in our food and the lack of nutrient density in our food and the complete absence of some of the micronutrients. Right. So we're starting to, you know, by raising better beef and by focusing on soil and really honoring livestock's role in an ecosystem, in ecology, um, we're starting to address um, a lot of kind of nasty problems at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously none of this is possible if no one is going to eat 
the meat, right? And you said when when you're first uh, when you first wanted to do it this way, your uncle said, "Why would you do that? No one's going to eat it." Um, right. So, what's happened since um, in terms of demand? Um, you know, I think I think it seems like to me that Americans have kind of gotten more comfortable with grass fed beef, but how much demand are you seeing for what you're producing? Right now, we're predominantly a wholesale business. Okay. Um, so it's complicated in the wholesale world because the wholesalers, you know, the people that buy our meat are sort of a layer between us and our customers. And um, they, they can be really incredible um, partnerships where they tell our story in a way that we just don't have um, the bandwidth or the expertise or really the advertising budget to tell. Mm. Um, but they can also be really challenging because they have so many other um, kind of business needs that they're attending to. Um, and I think what we run into most often is that a lot of mid-scale infrastructure is gone. And so um, people, I think, go to the grocery store and they might look for the grass-fed label, but so often it's coming from South America or Australia where they do have a lot more robust infrastructure. Um, Or sometimes um, it's partially grass-fed. It might say range-fed, but it's really finished in a feedlot. So Mm -hmm. I think consumers, and especially consumers who have had really good experiences with grass-fed or who are really compelled by the the idea of having cattle outside of a feedlot or the health benefits are looking for it. But I think the marketplace, especially at, um, you know, on, on the menu of restaurants and in grocery stores, is really confusing. Yeah. Well, and, and wholesale, I mean, I feel like the wholesale market, too, is there's so many people in between usually, right, like distributors. And so how do you find those markets like I know you have this new partnership with Dig um, the restaurant on the East Coast former it used to be called Dig in now they're just going by Dig um, I know you have this new partnership with them how did that come about like how are you actually finding um, these companies that will buy directly from you well at this point all of our customers buy almost all of our customers buy directly from us mm-hmm. we've tried to work with distributors in the past and it was just you know, in order to make our commitment to our producers, so we we sort of think of it, we ask our producers to make a commitment to their land and to the soil, and then we make a commitment to purchasing their animals. And so we really need our customers to make a commitment to us to buy the meat. Mm -hmm. And and it's really hard to do that in the wholesale world. So we search out unique partnerships that understand our constraints as a whole animal um, meat company where we have to sell every single of every animal that we buy that we've committed to a year or more in advance to purchasing. We have to sell every single cut. Right. Um, and so when we first knew of Dig, I mean, uh, you know, obviously I had known of the company, but when Taylor in particular reached out and wanted to have a conversation, we joked, we we're like, okay, they're doing good work, they care. Clearly, they're not going to buy beef from us because they're in New York and we're in Oregon. Mm. Um, But, you know, we want to support them in making a good decision about the meat that they're sourcing and help them understand what that looks like. I mean, that's really what we entered the conversation with. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but the moment we started talking to, to Taylor and learning really about the huge vision that they have um, for, you know, the type of change that needs to take place in, in the food system and the type of supply chains that they're building around vegetables and how they want to take that um, into the protein category, we were just like, <laughs> we have to work with you. Mm. I mean, and um, Taylor asked us, I think a question that very few of our buyers ask us, which is, how can we be your ideal customer? Hmm. Yeah, I would imagine you don't hear that that often. <laughs> <I know. laughs> we were just, we had to pause and go, like, say that again? <laughs> Let us think about that. Nobody's asked us that before. <laughs> Um, and Taylor's actually been a guest on this show before, um, along with uh, Diggins farm manager, Larry. Um, I don't remember what episode number it was, but if anyone's listening and wants to listen, you can just look it up um, by searching dig um, or dig in. It was called then. But um, anyway, so so they they were sort of like, we want to help you. We, we want we want to source meat that we believe in and they're kind of, so with them, you're starting at a really good place, right? Exactly. I mean, and, you know, obviously we've been building this channel. We've been investing in our production. We've been investing in soil health. We've been, um, you know, we have a lot of, um, it's not an idea at this point, right? We've all put many, many years into actually building something real, But what we haven't invested in is our story or um, branding, you know, marketing class. I mean, we've really just invested in our supply chain. So to have somebody like Dig come along um, looking for a really phenomenal example of what regenerative agriculture in the livestock sector can look like and, and what it can do. And so Taylor and Chef Matt came out to the ranch we looked at soil, um, we looked at cover crops, we looked at cattle, we spent some time in the butcher shop, we cooked a lot of meat. Um, and then Catherine and I, Catherine, who um, is in charge of wholesale at, at the meat company and really an amazing person, um, we went to New York and we spent time in the kitchen at Dig and we hmm. um, tasted the meat that the chef had. So it's been a very... Um, I mean, we, we learned very early on that we shared a lot of values and that we had kind of um, complementary things that we were bringing to the relationship. You know, we had made the investment in the production. They had, um, you know, all the infrastructure in and preparing and serving food. But it still took a long time to bring those two pieces together because our, our beef is different. Um, it has... You know, it's raised in a completely different way, so it has very different characteristics. Yeah. Um, So it continues to, I mean, I think we both learn every week. Um, Every time Dig puts a new cut on the menu, we learn from each other. Um, But it's actually, it's just been really fun. And, And we're finding more and more relationships, not exactly like Dig, they're pretty exceptional in, in how they source and the vision that they have. But um, I think more and more companies understand that they have an important role to not just find a handful of attributes at the lowest cost possible, Mm -hmm. but to actually legitimately work towards making this world more healthy and more viable and undo some of the damage of the past. And the more companies take that on as part of, 
you know, how they have to survive, um, the more they're looking for companies like ours that are actually doing the work on the ground. Right. And so you're, are you kind of looking for those kinds of companies that are sort of mission driven and, um, or do they mostly come to you? Um, it, it's both. Yeah. Um, it's certainly nice when I get a call from a company that says, <laughs> you know, we don't want to buy these from you. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times, it, you know, it's a, it's a relatively small, well-connected network in regenerative ag. And so um, as I go to speaking engagements or, um, you know, even read news articles about what other people are doing, I think there's an ongoing um, conversation. And I think we're also all sort of looking for support from each other because sometimes um, it, it, when you're really in kind of mainstream conventional ag or mainstream conventional food, you, you know, you get that look like you're nuts. <laughs> what are you guys doing, really? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that we're all creating a, a sense of community around some of these practices and ideas and supporting each other, which is important. Right. What about um, local, um, like, is the value of um, supporting regional and local food, food economies, is that part of um, what you're doing? And, like, how does that play into, you know, sort of building this supply chain in the West and then shipping the meat to this company that's based in the East? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. And that was actually one that we grappled with initially because we really do believe in regional production models. I believe that, um, you know, different regions of the country have all these different nuances that we can tap into and the regional identity is really important and we need to celebrate that. And the moment you make that region too large, you lose the specific understanding and connection to place. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when we first talked with Taylor, um, like I said, we just, we assumed that there was no way they would buy meat from us. But we have, one of the purposes of our business is actually to be a model that um, hopefully, fingers crossed, toes crossed, that that other people can learn from and that we can help um, and that other people can even duplicate to some degree in other regions. Um, And so what we realized is that the type of work that DIG is doing is pretty new and it's pretty innovative. And the type of work that we're doing and the support we have um, from some of our impact investors that have given us money for um, operating capital Mm -hmm. and who really believe in our mission, that puts both of those companies in unique positions to work together and pave the way for other companies. Mm. So we've been very clear that the long-term plan is not that we're shipping meat to New York, that eventually as we figure out this relationship, that will probably open the door for some Northeast producers to come in. Uh Um, Or, you know, as they grow, maybe they'll end up on the West coast. Um, Right. You know, we're not, we're not sure what that long-term thing looks like, but the reality is today it costs us, you know, maybe Ten to thirty cents a pound to ship beef across the country, whereas it's actually much more expensive to try to grow and process that meat in many parts of 
the Northeast than mm. it is to just grow it here and ship it on, you know, trucks that are that are already going that direction. Right. So, as you know, it's so often the case, it's complicated, but um, I think we're both very comfortable with the um, business model that we're developing, how that can inform other regional grass-fed beef producers and their business models, and how hopefully it can inform how other companies like Big, Fast Casual, or otherwise can buy from companies like us. Because those are the type of things that, you know, duplicated several times are really going to make an impact. Yeah. And and you're talking a lot about growth, right? About this, the hopefully you, you having this business and, you know, uh, creating these partnerships leading to other people kind of... Um, following this, this same, using the same method and kind of following in your footsteps. Um, how do you see that happening? Like what, what is the, what needs to happen in your mind to really grow the grass fed beef industry? You know, that is a question I ask myself (laughs) daily. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think the first thing, the easiest thing, is that consumers need to make a real commitment to their protein, and they need to demand that their restaurants and their grocery stores do the same. Mm. I mean, a living, breathing animal um, that, you know, was there for us, you know, to be able to eat meat is a very impactful thing. The way that the animal is raised, not only for its own quality of life, but for the environment, is a very impactful thing. So I, I see a lot of chefs put on um, local honey or, you know, maybe some salt or mushrooms that they've foraged. I mean, these things that, you know, yeah, that's great, but, but where's your protein coming from? Yeah. Um, and... I think if if people really leaned into that beef could be part of um, addressing climate change and that well-raised livestock is one of the most impactful food decisions that you can make and just own that and celebrate it, I think that would start to shift things in a really profound way. Um, and I get frustrated that we're having these conversations about, you know, eat less meat, um, plant-based meat, and we're not talking about what is the appropriate role of livestock in our food system. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think those conversations are hard at this moment, kind of for a similar reason to what you were saying about how you have to make decisions based on um, what the system looks like right now, right, in terms of, like, maybe we're not going to do it locally right now. And I think, you know, I, I struggle with that when people, people ask me a lot, like, should I eat less meat? And a lot of the times I'm like... Y- yeah, you should stop eating meat because the only thing available is commodity beef. You know, the if like the only right, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's just so much of the system and the people that are doing beef the way you're doing it are such a drop in the bucket right now. And so it can it's hard to to find that, right? And to Absolutely. Um and so it's it's such a complicated about- question and moment, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think where I really struggle is the investment that we've made in meat substitutes, mm. um, 
So rather than putting that investment into our land, into our soil, right. and into, you know, the type of livestock rotations, right? So we didn't have all these plant-based solutions until people thought that there was a tremendous profit potential yeah. um, in investing in them. And had we put even a fraction of those dollars into our rural communities, into our land, into livestock production methods that built soil, um, we would have a lot more options. So I Absolutely. think I... Um, completely agree with you when your options, and I do the same thing when your options are, um, you know, industrialized meat Mm -hmm. versus plant-based. Absolutely. But I think one of my challenges is that increasingly those are the only options. Yeah. And there's another way, and that way is really important. Um, And right now, you know, here I am out in the middle of nowhere, and my farmers and ranchers that I work with are on the ground doing the innovation, doing the R&D to try to figure out how to build soil um, on their own. Mm-hmm. And, and that's crazy. Like, we should be investing in them. Um, and, and at least, you know, for now, consumers can invest in them through purchasing their meat. But, you know, there's so much more that needs to be done. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that's a great place um, to end. Corey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Lisa. It was great. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.